The title of this morning's message is called Under the Influence. The phrase under the influence usually makes us think of alcohol, <laughs> but maybe it should make us think of the Holy Spirit. This morning, I want to talk to you about having and accessing the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says this, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now I've underlined the words, do not be drunk, excess, and be filled. We're going to take a little closer look at these words. The Greek word for drunk, nephusko, <laughs> according to the Strong's Concordance, it simply means to intoxicate. So that could be alcohol, that could be drugs, that could be anything that changes your mind. <laughs> something that brings you under the influence of something other than Jesus. Now, the Greek word for excess might surprise you. <laughs> it surprised me. <laughs> it's the Greek word asotia, according to the Strong's. In its strictest sense of the word, means unsavedness. That sounds kind of serious. <laughs> according to the Strong's, it says, by implication, it means prof. Fligacy. See, I don't even know these words. I had to use a dictionary to find out what the Strong's is actually telling me. What in the world is profligacy? <laughs> well, it's a state of being abandoned in moral principle and in vice. Sounds pretty serious, too. <laughs> What's Paul talking about here? I think Paul's point is quite a bit stronger than just calling drunkenness a state of excess. He's actually saying that drunk Christians do not look or act like they're saved. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> and it's true. <laughs> drunk people, whether they're saved or unsaved, do not act like Jesus. <laughs> and the context of this verse is being imitators of God. The agape love that we have in us, living that out towards others. And specifically, not acting like the unsaved. The Apostle Paul has a habit in his letters of in the beginning of a letter, the first several chapters, he tells you who you are, what happened to you when you got saved, that you are a brand new creation, that all the power and glory of God that lives within you. And he tells you that so that when he's done telling you who you are, he can tell you what that should look like in your life. And so he says, do not be drunk with wine, because it looks like you're not saved. <laughs> and that's not what we want the world to see. We don't want the world to say, well, you're no different than me. We want them to say, oh, you've got something I don't have. What is that in you? He gets to the practicality after he tells you who you are. So this is some of that practicality. Beginning in verse 8 of chapter 5, he says to this, For ye were sometimes darkness. See, he goes right back to identity every single day. You see, yes, you used to look like that. <laughs> but now ye are light in the Lord. Walk, live as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. You see, he's telling you, you've got fruit. 
<laughs> Let the Spirit bring forth his fruit in your life. Verse 10, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Verse 15, see then that ye walked circumspectly, I mean straightly, strictly, not as fools, but as wise. And people who are drunk are not wise. <laughs> they do and say stupid things. They say and do dangerous things <laughs> because they are not under the control of themselves. And they're not under the control of the Holy Spirit. And that's because they're primarily under the influence of alcohol. Someone under the influence of alcohol is like magnifying your flesh head. Now, our flesh head, the natural mind and brain, the way it operates, is ugly all by itself. <laughs> okay? Natural thinking is what the Bible calls carnal thinking. Not all natural thinking is wrong or bad. But all bad thinking, all unholy thinking, it comes from the natural realm. So we don't need to magnify <laughs> the ugly flesh head. We don't want it in control of us. It influences us way too much as it is. So what alcohol primarily does is it takes away our ability to be in full control of ourselves. Now, years ago, when I first went looking for God's view and opinion regarding alcohol consumption, and this won't be the whole message, don't worry, <laughs> but I went looking, okay, God, what about me? What do you want from my life? And I found that Alcohol was not prohibited in the Bible, but drunkenness was. <laughs> there's a lot that says don't get drunk, but there's really nothing that says don't drink alcohol. So when I got to Ephesians 5, because I started at the beginning of the book and I worked my way through, I want to know what God thinks about drinking alcohol. Here it says, do not be drunk. So I said, okay, God, so it's okay for me to drink in moderation. And he said, absolutely not. <laughs> See, he told me, you are an all or nothing kind of girl. <laughs> so when it comes to alcohol, it's got to be nothing. Alcohol is not for you. Now, I didn't really care because I really didn't particularly enjoy <laughs> being under the influence of alcohol. I did not hold alcohol well. <laughs> it often came up. <laughs> so it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal. I just wanted to know what God's will for me was. I thought, well, I can drink if I just simply don't get drunk. And God said to me, how drunk is drunk? And I was like, I don't know. I mean, there's the legal limit kind of drunk. <laughs> and I said, well, what do you say drunk is, God? And he said, how pregnant is pregnant? <laughs> and I was like, oh. <laughs> I understood his point. You see, a mother-to-be knows before anybody else can tell that she's pregnant. She has signs and indicators in her body telling her that something is different, even though no one else can see it. So for me, even one alcoholic drink, I could tell I was under the influence of alcohol. So God said for me, alcohol was not a good idea. 
Most people think of being drunk or under the influence in terms of what a nine-month pregnancy looks like. <laughs> in other words, you can't hide being nine months pregnant, and most people think being drunk is being falling down drunk where everybody in the world knows <laughs> that you are incapacitated by alcohol. <laughs> and God says, that's not my best plan. He told me that drunkenness actually begins when we become aware that we're under its influence. And God prefers that we keep ourselves primarily under his influence. Alcohol is one of those topics that when you bring it out in the open, <laughs> you can have yourself a fight <laughs> among believers. <laughs> if you choose to drink alcohol, that's between you and Jesus. And that's usually what I say to people. It's between you and Jesus, because the Bible doesn't prohibit it. And God said, you know, that's not actually correct. <laughs> what do you mean, Jesus? <laughs> he says it's not just between you and Jesus. It's between you and your spouse, you and your kids, you and your employer, you and the officer who pulls you over. <laughs> it's between a lot more than you and just Jesus. It's between you and your checkbook. It's between you and your friends and your family and everybody else who loves you. <laughs> Alcohol can unwittingly creep up on people and take them captive. And then completely and literally destroy everything in their life. I have personally and professionally as a pastor seen way too much destruction due to alcohol consumption to advocate as a pastor for its use, even in moderation. And that's because nobody plans to become an alcoholic. A few years ago, I got a message from a friend. She said, you know, under grace, we can drink. And I was like, okay, <laughs> what's your point here? <laughs> and she said, I was so happy to find out I can drink alcohol. I can party with my friends. <laughs> okay. And then about a year later, I got a phone call from the same person. Me and my husband are separating. What happened? She said, well, you know, I was so happy we could drink. She said, I started having wine after dinner. My husband started having beer after dinner. And what started out as one glass of wine and one beer had escalated to a bottle of wine per night and a six-pack of beer per night. Nobody plans to become an alcoholic. It is dangerous. Now, if you consume alcohol, there's no condemnation from God, and there's no condemnation for you. I don't condemn your choices, okay? But your life affects everybody who loves you. And usually, when something's becoming a problem, those who love you See it before you do. <laughs> God wants us to live in the freedom that he has already provided for us. And that includes being free from any and all addictive habits. So anyway, <laughs> in light of all of that, Paul has a very dim view of drunkenness. He takes that idea, because it's all one sentence, be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, which looks like unsavedness, <laughs> but be filled with the Holy Spirit. These two things are together. He's actually talking about the influence. 
the alcohol has influence. It takes away your inhibitions so that you can be silly. <laughs> it takes away your inhibitions so you can be stupid. <laughs> Jesus never does that. Jesus will give us more and more freedom, but it will never hurt us. So he's talking about the influence of the Holy Spirit. This is also the only place where we find an exhortation to be filled with the Holy Spirit again and again. According to the Strong's Concordance, the Greek word for filled, I love that word, is pleiroo. It's from the Strong's, and it simply is translated as be filled. But the Strong says that it means to make replete, which means to be completely full. That is literally to cram full, like cramming a net full of fish. Remember the load of fish that was so big that the net broke? That's the picture of being crammed full of the Holy Spirit, to be crammed full with who God is. It goes on and says, to level up a hollow. In other words, there's nothing in us that does not have God in it. We're crammed full. Figuratively, it simply means to furnish or imbue, diffuse, influence, satisfy. See, Jesus satisfies like nothing else can. But I personally love the idea of the word cram. <laughs> it's a funny word, and it's a funny picture. That's why I like it. We are crammed full of God. So I looked up crammed in the Webster's 1828. It means this, to press or drive, particularly in filling or thrusting one thing into another. It means to stuff, to crowd, to fill to superfluity, as to cram anything into a basket or bag. To cram a room full of people, to cram victuals or food down your throat, it means overabundance to the point of being overtaken. <laughs> This is the picture this word is supposed to paint for us. It's fullness to the point of overflowing and breaking through. So the Apostle Paul is saying, instead of being overtaken by the influence of alcohol, let yourself be overtaken by the influence of the fullness of the Holy Spirit within you. And then out of that fullness, he says, let worship become your joy and your focus and your practice. And we see this in the following verses, verses 19 and 20. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So basically, <laughs> the term happy hour can take on a whole new meaning for us. <laughs> Sunday morning is basically our spiritual happy hour. <laughs> it's where we gather together and praise and worship our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's so much healthier for us to drink of the Holy Spirit, of his life and his power and his word. I also want to point out what the Greek grammar indicates regarding the phrases, do not be drunk and be filled because both of these phrases are what scholars call present imperative active voice. Present means current, imperative means command, active voice means in the future. And so active voice, it indicates a command to do something in the future, which involves continuous or repeated action. Or in the negative sense, it's a command to stop doing something in the future. 
So each of these phrases are commands from the Apostle Paul. He's basically commanding the Ephesians to stop letting alcohol have influence over them and commanding them instead to let the Holy Spirit have continuous or repeated influence over them because that's the wise thing to do. And we want to live as wise people of God. I looked up the word influence in the Webster's 1828 dictionary as well. And it says this, in a general sense, influence denotes power whose operation is invisible and known only by its effects, or a power whose cause and operation are unseen. I thought this was a good definition of what the Holy Spirit does. He influences us to believe the truth about who we already are and who and what we already possess. His power is invisible and is known only by the changes he produces. Normally, we can't see what God is doing in us through the Holy Spirit. So for us, the major effect he has on us comes through his voice and his persuasion. The Holy Spirit helps us to believe what is actually true according to the word of God. And believing what is true activates our faith, and our faith then releases God's power in us and through us. This is how God wants us to live, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. A few weeks ago, Mary came to me after service and was sharing with me something God had told her. She was all excited. She started speaking her faith out, <laughs> and she started leaking <laughs> the power of God through her hands. I asked, do you know you're doing this? <laughs> and she's like, I am? <laughs> I was like, yes, you are. <laughs> Faith-filled words release the power, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And one of the God's favorite ways to release the anointing is through our hands. That's important <laughs> for us to know that even if we can't feel it, he still does it. You see, so many of us want to feel a certain thing. <laughs> I never feel <laughs> a certain way. <laughs> now, the Holy Spirit will reveal things to us. Mary didn't know that that's what was happening. He wanted her to know. Powerful woman of God going around releasing the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and she doesn't even know it. <laughs> That's all of us. That's all of us. You see, we don't think of ourselves that way. We don't think that it's important that we lay hands on somebody. But it is. The Holy Spirit always wants to work in us and through us. The question that usually arises from this verse is, how do we know <laughs> that we are filled with the Holy Spirit? <laughs> now, if you ask the average Baptist, they will tell you, you received everything at salvation. But if you ask a Pentecostal, they would tell you that there's more. Who's right? <laughs> well, <laughs> when someone asks me how to describe what we believe here at Triumphant Grace Ministries, I tell them, if you take a Baptist and a Pentecostal and you smoosh them together, <laughs> that would be a good description of what we believe. Because we believe that we really do get everything when we receive Christ. However, 
That doesn't mean we know, understand, and experience everything that has been given to us. That's a progress of growth. We grow in knowing him. We grow in understanding him. We grow in operating under his influence. There are many fillings of the Holy Spirit. I have been slain in the Spirit, fallen on the floor, and laid there, <laughs> going, this is cool, God, what's it for? <laughs> I have been on the floor where I tried to get up and God took his finger on my forehead and said, no, you stay down there. <laughs> I'm not done with you. <laughs> there are lots of things we can experience by the Holy Spirit. doesn't mean we always understand them. There's always more of God for us to experience, to discover, and to find. So, yes, you get everything. You get the kingdom when you come to Christ. <laughs> but most believers don't necessarily understand all that they've been given. And so it's the process of unwrapping this gift of salvation. So let's look at what the Bible has to say about being filled with the Holy Spirit. To begin with, Jesus himself was filled or empowered with the Holy Spirit. We can see this in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, this is what Jesus said, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. That's our call as well. To be anointed means to be smeared as a representative of the Holy Spirit. That's why people use oil. It is a representative of the Holy Spirit. So people get anointed for offices and all of that because it's a representative of the inward truth that the Holy Spirit is working. So Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus at his water baptism. That's where he identified with humanity. And everything Jesus did, he did as a righteous human being through the power of the Holy Spirit. As a man, Jesus did not operate in the miraculous. The Holy Spirit and the Father worked those things through him. Jesus is the prototype, <laughs> a righteous human being filled and empowered with God. That's us. <laughs> That's why Jesus is the prototype. We also see this in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Us too. <laughs> Again, we see that none of the miraculous power came from Jesus, the human being. Even though he was perfectly righteous, it was all God the Father operating through the Holy Spirit. That's because Jesus operated on earth as a human being. So that we can look in Jesus and say, oh, Jesus did this. This is what we're called to look like too. We see this in 1 John 2, verse 6, which saith, He that saith he abideth in him, Jesus, ought himself also to walk, to live, even as Jesus walked and lived. Jesus is our prototype. <laughs> well, so often we want to look at the disciples and say, we should be like the disciples. No! <laughs> they were unregenerate men <laughs> until the coming of the Holy Spirit. That's when they also became prototypes. Now, before the cross, those who believed on Jesus as Messiah, which simply means the anointed one, and as Messiah or Christ, 
Christ means the anointed one, the one anointed with the Holy Spirit. I used to wonder why when the New Testament authors would write to the churches, they would say, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I go, what about Holy Spirit? <laughs> why don't they ever mention Holy Spirit in the introduction? And God one day said, they are. You cannot get Jesus without the Holy Spirit. <laughs> when they say Christ, they're saying Jesus, the Son of God, who is himself anointed with the person and power of the Holy Spirit. We think Christ is Jesus' last name. <laughs> it is about the package. The package, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, those before the cross would have been counted as righteous if they believed in Jesus the same way Abraham was counted righteous. By faith. But neither Abraham nor the believers, the disciples, prior to the cross, had what became available at Pentecost. Even the disciples were not born again until Pentecost. Now, the Holy Spirit was with them, working with them to bring people to faith in Christ. But Jesus told them about what would happen to them regarding the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, beginning with verse 16. I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. You cannot make Holy Spirit leave you. I don't care how stupid we get. <laughs> he will never leave us nor forsake us. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But you know him, for he dwelleth with you, and he shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live. You shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, which is to believe <laughs> and walk in love, <laughs> and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. This is important because Jesus tells them that not only will the Holy Spirit be in them, but Christ <laughs> will be in them. Jesus will be in them. The Father will be in them. That this is a package deal. This is important. You cannot get Jesus without also getting the Holy Spirit. You can't. He won't let you. <laughs> Before the cross, the disciples had the Holy Spirit working with them. They were doing the miracles and signs. They were healing everybody, casting out demons, raising the dead. They weren't doing it. <laughs> the Holy Spirit was doing it. <laughs> but that was not what God had promised them was going to be forever. Jesus had just told them in John there, what, what you're going to get is something that's permanent, something that you get to keep forever. After Jesus was raised from the dead, Jesus appeared to 11 of his disciples in the upper room, and he told them to receive the Holy Spirit. The word there is actually take. <laughs> take the Holy Spirit. And he breathed on them. 
Now, some theologians want people to believe that the disciples were born again at that moment, but didn't have the fullness of the Holy Spirit until Pentecost, thereby making salvation a two-step process, (laughs) which is what I was originally taught years ago. I was taught that first you get the Spirit of Jesus, but you're not completely saved. (laughs) You're not holy yet. (laughs) You've got to be sanctified with the Holy Spirit. You've got to seek the Holy Spirit. You've got to wait for the Holy Spirit. You've got to plead for the Holy Spirit. None of that is true. None of it. You cannot get Christ and not get the Father and the Spirit as well. Jesus told us that he, the Father, and the Holy Spirit were a package deal. So when Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit on the disciples, it doesn't say anything in particular happened. He didn't say, receive me and my Father and the Holy Spirit now and forever. Nope. This was a special impartation for the disciples, (laughs) for his apostles. They had things to do, (laughs) and they weren't prepared. Jesus told them they weren't prepared. He told them, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait to get what I've promised. Also, in Scripture, there's no mention of them becoming new creations at that time. Jesus merely tells them to take hold of the Holy Spirit as he breathes on them. This is probably best understood as the same kind of filling with the Holy Spirit that Elizabeth had experienced. John the Baptist's mother says, Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit. Did she receive the salvation that we know of? No. Was she righteous? It says so. It says God counted her righteous. And so by the Holy Spirit, she prophesied about the Messiah. A special infilling, not the permanent infilling. It was temporary. That's not what God wants for us. There's no such thing as a temporary infilling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came on them, and it says in. The Holy Spirit speaks into us, even when he's on the outside. (laughs) That's what was happening there. The scripture says that when Elizabeth heard Mary's voice, that she was filled with the Holy Spirit. But this kind of filling of the Holy Spirit was to temporarily enable Elizabeth, whom God had counted righteous by faith, to prophesy regarding Jesus being the Messiah. And Mary needed to hear it. Mary needed for her to prophesy. It wasn't the permanent, life-giving, born-again reality that came at Pentecost. She was still under the Old Covenant. In John chapter 3, beginning in verse 5, Jesus describes this new creation reality to a man named Nicodemus. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. In these scriptures, we see people sometimes want to make the water about water baptism, be water baptized, and then get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus actually tells us in the next verse what he's actually saying. (laughs) That which is born of the flesh, the natural, produces only that which is of the flesh and natural, and that which is born of the Spirit. You see, Holy Spirit coming on you, enabling you to do something, is not the same thing as being born of the Spirit. When we receive Christ, we are born again. 
So salvation wasn't just a matter of the Holy Spirit coming upon someone temporarily to enable them to do something special. It's actually God killing you off and starting over. <laughs> That's a little bit different. <laughs> when we are born over, we are born into the new kingdom. The disciples in the upper room hadn't yet received that. They received help of the Holy Spirit, but they hadn't received the person and become one with the Holy Spirit. So in Acts chapter 1, Jesus tells his apostles to wait in Jerusalem for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is to give them power to be his witnesses, to be just like the prototype. <laughs> and in chapter 2, Pentecost comes, and the apostles all get baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit, and they all speak in other languages as the Holy Spirit enabled them. And since Jerusalem was filled with unbelieving Jews from all over the known world at that time for Pentecost, all those visiting Jews began to notice the apostles. They were speaking unlearned languages in such a way that it confused the listeners. The listeners wanted to know how it was possible for Galileans, of all people, to declare the wonderful works of God in their own known languages. Some onlookers even said the apostles must be drunk. Now, isn't that a funny thing to say? <laughs> you're speaking in a language I understand, but you're drunk? Where did they get that connection? Why would they think the apostles were drunk? Well, it doesn't actually tell us, but a clue might be found in Acts 13.52, which says, And the disciples were filled with joy <laughs> and with the Holy Spirit. You know, drunk people tend to be pretty happy in the beginning. <laughs> kind of goes away later on, but usually there's lots of joy. <laughs> now, that would make sense. The apostles must have been overjoyed as the Holy Spirit came and took up permanent residence within them. They were born again. They were filled with the Spirit. And those two things go together, always. But speaking in tongues is not always shown in Scripture to be present in each and every new believer in the book of Acts. The Ethiopian that Philip leads to faith in Christ in Acts chapter 8 is not said to have spoken in tongues. He professed faith in Christ, and he wanted to be water baptized. For them, that's how they understood beginning a new life. No speaking in tongues is noted. The jailer that Paul brought to faith in Acts chapter 16 does the same thing. He confesses faith in Jesus, and he wants to be water baptized. He's going to start his new life. Neither is said to have prayed or spoken in tongues. But they were both saved. <laughs> if they were saved, they were also filled with the Holy Spirit also. The absence of an unlearned language is not evidence of only having half of a salvation. God doesn't do half salvation. God doesn't leave you unequipped. <laughs> it just means that there's more grace for them to still partake of. They were newbies. They were new babies. They didn't know nothing. <laughs> Speaking in an unknown tongue wasn't necessary as an evidence of a full salvation. But speaking in tongues was a really important sign for Peter and the other apostles as a verification of God confirming his promise to pour out his spirit on all flesh. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is the spokesman who gives the explanation of that promise, beginning in verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken unto my words. For these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. 
They didn't drink strong liquor. The Jews never drank hard liquor. It was reserved for those who were dying. They thought only heathen people would be so low as to drink hard liquor and come under its influence. So when they did drink wine, it was watered down. <laughs> he says, it's but the third hour, it's nine o'clock in the morning. How could they be drunk already? <laughs> it takes all day to get drunk. <laughs> that was his point. <laughs> but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it came to pass in the last days of the old covenant, saith God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy what? Women? <laughs> and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. On my servants, that's slaves, on my slaves and my handmaidens. What? <laughs> People without nobility? You're not talking about Pharisees? <laughs> People in control? No, he says, everybody. I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. To prophesy simply means to speak under the unction of the Holy Spirit. And this shall come to pass, this is verse 21, that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. They will receive a full and complete salvation. Salvation is not a process. When I was first saved, I was taught it was a process and you had to work for everything. And then I found out something really strange. It's a gift. It's a complete gift. You know, we're still in the process of, of unwrapping all that it contains because we don't know everything. He has so much for us. But I got it all when Jesus came to live in me. I was righteous when Jesus came to live in me. I was spirit-filled when Jesus came to live in me. Where was I spirit-filled? In my spirit. Did I understand how to live under the influence of him? No, I was 10. <laughs> I was really stupid. <laughs> You see, the early church would have interpreted all flesh as being all Jewish flesh, all Jewish male flesh. And Jesus had a whole other idea. The Jews did not consider Gentiles or Samaritans to be equal with themselves. <laughs> they were the Jews. They were the chosen ones. And everybody else was unclean. And that was true under the Old Covenant. Anybody could come to the one true and living God, but they had to go through Israel. And now, everybody could just come by faith. <laughs> but they had a very strong mindset. We are the chosen. All y'all don't mean nothing. <laughs> and that mindset would actually take the power of God in order to be changed. That's why God sent Peter to Cornelius' house after telling him that he shouldn't call unclean what God had called clean. God was not talking about food. He was talking about people. <laughs> he said, I've declared everybody clean. Everybody can come. Everybody is worthy to receive salvation because I've paid for everybody to have it. Doesn't mean everybody has it. Just means they can. So Peter ends up preaching to a house full of Gentiles and they all received the Holy Spirit the exact same way as the Jews did. That's the point. That's the point for Peter. You see, he didn't like Gentiles. He didn't want them having part of his covenant. But God convinced him that, oh, 
You get the same Holy Spirit as well. That means you've got the same salvation that we have. That means you have the same covenant that we have. Oh, no. <laughs> That's why they had to all speak in tongues. I love that story because he doesn't even get done with his message and the Holy Spirit just grabs everybody. You see, they were already all believers. They're the reason God sent Peter to them. They were already believers in the one true and living God, and they were hungry to have it all. And then Peter is summoned to Samaria, where Philip was bringing people to faith in Christ, the one anointed with the Holy Spirit, and he's baptizing them in water. But there was no evidence that they were obtaining the same fullness as the Jews and the Gentiles. The scripture says that the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of those who had come to faith in Samaria. Philip was there working miracles, healing people, getting them to believe on Jesus. Everything was supposed to be working the way it always had, but there was something wrong. <laughs> they weren't having the same evidence. So God sends Peter and John. Why? Because Peter is the head of the church at this point, and people are going to believe whatever Peter says. So God has to convince Peter that the Samaritans get the same Holy Spirit the same power, the same covenant. And he does that with them speaking in tongues. So God purposely did not let them be filled with the Holy Spirit and receive the fullness of the salvation until Peter got there. Because Peter needed to know that even those stinking Samaritans, you see, the only people the Jews hated worse than Gentiles was Samaritans. <laughs> they thought Samaritans were corrupted. They were worse than the Gentiles. <laughs> So that's why God had to use Peter, get him into all these places so that he could verify that he would know that the same God of the Jews and the same God of the Gentiles was the same God of the Samaritans. In 1 Corinthians 14, 22, the apostle Paul tells us that one of the kinds of tongues of the Holy Spirit is explicitly for convincing the unbelievers of the reality of God. It says this, Wherefore, tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. Peter was a believer who believed not. <laughs> that the other people groups should be included in God's offer of salvation. So God used this particular grace of the Holy Spirit to convince him that everyone who believes on Jesus gets the same Holy Spirit, the same fullness of God himself. Peter didn't have all the answers. He was a work in process, just like us. Salvation was so new, and they, they were babies. They were all babies. <laughs> but he had the Holy Spirit. And Peter kept himself under the influence of the Holy Spirit and God's word. Holy Spirit will always verify himself in God's word. So that even when he didn't really like the truth, <laughs> he still recognized what God was doing. And for the most part, submitted to what God was leading him to do. Later, the Apostle Paul did have to scold him a little bit about him withdrawing himself from Gentiles. <laughs> so it was a long, it was a process. <laughs> when the Apostle Paul encourages us to be continuously filled with the Holy Spirit, he's really talking about us letting the Holy Spirit, who is crammed full on the inside of us, to let him have influence over everything in our lives, especially when we might not like where we are in our growing process. <laughs> in order to let the Holy Spirit have continual influence in us, we need to give him our attention through prayer and worship and seeking him in the word. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit 
want to lead and guide us into all truth and into all the goodness and kindness of our God. Too many believers who are crammed full of God don't even know it. Many believers in the world have been taught that all of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, all the wonder-working power of God has been done away with. It's not true. It's the same Holy Spirit. He does the same work today as he did then. All of the gifts and graces of the Holy Spirit are available to all who believe and partake of the Holy Spirit by faith. In 1 Corinthians 14, these are my last scriptures, <laughs> it says, pursue gifts? No, it says pursue love. The word there that is translated pursue can be used in a negative sense or in a positive sense. In a negative sense, it means to persecute. You see, persecution has a vehemence about it. <laughs> So when we put that into the positive, there should be a vehemence about seeking and pursuing the love of our Father. Everything begins and ends with love of our Father. And then it says, yes, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Why? Because they're all in you. <laughs> but they aren't necessarily activated. That comes by seeking the Father and asking Him to help us by faith activate those things. Many of our Reformed brethren don't believe in any of this. And guess what? They don't experience any of it. Why? Because they don't have faith for it. Everything God has in His kingdom is available through love by faith. Verse 2, For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men. This is our prayer language. Everyone is able to access that. I personally had difficulty. <laughs> I was very strong flesh-headed. <laughs> but it says, for no one understands him, but he utters ministries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies, speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues. Yep. <laughs> and I also want you all to prophesy, to speak by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The one who prophesies is greater in effect than the one who speaks in his prayer language, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. All of the graces and operations of the Holy Spirit are for today. So, do I believe that there's always more of God for us to find and experience. Yes. But he's been with us the whole time. How big and infinite is our Father? <laughs> How much of him can we find? How much do we not know? <laughs> That's what this process is about. It's about unwrapping the gift of salvation that we already possess. Years ago, I heard Kenneth Copeland talking he, went, he would go to God and, God, I want more of you, God. I want more of you. Oh, Lord, please pour out more of your spirit. Oh, God. And as he went on and on and God, on, God interrupted him and said, Kenneth, yes, Lord, where do I go to get more of me? <laughs> do you think I'm withholding something from you? Because he did. He thought he didn't have all that God was. He thought he had to pray for God to pour out the Holy Spirit again. 
No, Holy Spirit is poured out and at work in the world everywhere. Everywhere. We don't need more of God. We already have more than we could ever use. <laughs> we have him in his fullness of power. And he just wants us to learn to walk in it, to activate it, to not be afraid of it. So that not only do we practice the operations of the Holy Spirit at church, but as we go, as we lay our hand on that person who doesn't even know that we're spirit-filled <laughs> and that they need to be healed. Because some people won't accept prayer. That doesn't stop God. You are the prototype just like Jesus. And that's how we need to see ourselves. One of the things I want to start doing about once a month at least is having altar service. That's where I was first slain in the spirit. That was where I was first uh, couldn't get up off the floor until God was done with me. <laughs> that's where I learned that when you pray for people, the word of knowledge will come forth. You see, you all have that. You all need to exercise that. And one of the best places to do that is here, where people love you. And if you say it wrong, it doesn't matter. <laughs> because it's operating by love. All of you have all of the power of God within you. But how often do we practice? Not very often. But let's start. It's important. Young people understand what they have. The older people who've been around forever, <laughs> they've got stories. When I was trying to prepare this message, I had so many stories. It's like, where on earth do I begin? There's so much waiting for us. Amen? Amen. So what I want you to come away with today is that salvation is a complete and finished work. You have everything you need when you receive Jesus. Because you can't get Jesus apart from the Holy Spirit. You get it all. Amen? Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. I thank you that you had to go to great lengths to prove to Peter that everyone gets the same Holy Spirit. Everyone gets the same salvation. Everyone is equally precious in your eyes. Father God, I ask that you continue to fill us with your influence. We would let you continually influence our decisions, continually influence us and fill us with your joy. Father God, I thank you that we are full of power, and I ask that you open our eyes to see just how powerful we are so that we can start practicing and walking in that in every area of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.